morning, everybody. The message that I'm about to share with you, we may not all agree on. I'll just let you know that. And uh, some of you are going to think, Pastor Ron has ventured into the arena of politics. But let me clarify something, okay? Several years ago, and more and more so, our government has ventured into the area of religion and biblical values and intruded therein. And so that's why I'm going to share this message this morning. And, and um, I'm hoping to set forth biblical principles. And there'll be some opinion in this message as well. And I hope to distinguish when I've moved into that area. But I pray that we'll each really hear the Lord and not my opinions through this message. So I'm just going to ask you to bow with me for prayer. Lord, thank you for your truth, which reigns, and thank you that you reign, and that uh, you have a plan, and you have used our nation uh, in the past, and there have been difficult times, challenging times, and yet you have always blessed and been there for our country, and so, Lord, our, we've not always been there for you, and so I ask for your guidance, uh, not just for this message, but for uh, our nation at this time, at this crucial time in its history. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the dark days leading up to World War II, and in that dark, darkened culture of Germany, when the Nazis came into power, so many were just swayed by the political the winds of the time. And the church in Germany generally capitulated to the Nazi regime and was complicit in it. But there was a man, among a few others, by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a Lutheran pastor. And he stirred the hearts of some people and of a remnant church to stand against Hitler and that Nazi regime. Toward the end of World War II, he was... He was arrested, he was imprisoned, and just a few days before the war ended, Hitler himself ordered that Dietrich Bonhoeffer be hung, and he was. There's a man named Eric Metaxas, who's a contemporary of ours, who's with the Colson Foundation, and a few years ago he wrote a book, a biography called Bonhoeffer, about this Lutheran pastor, and it's a great read, I'd really recommend it to you. Well. Eric Metaxas was recently interviewed by the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association for its Decision magazine. And in the interview, the person asked him, what did you mean by the statement you made recently that America needs a Bon, or is it a Bonhoeffer moment? And he said this, I mean that we all need to face where we are and make difficult choices. Even voting in this election presents what for many is a deeply unpalatable choice. But if we are to come out of this difficult time, we need to make that choice and other choices. God is sifting the wheat from the chaff. So many in Bonhoeffer's day couldn't be bothered with politics, for example. But God raised up Bonhoeffer to blow the trumpet and call God's people to stand up to injustice. Few heeded the call. The question today is whether God's people will step aside or will stand in the breach and pray and act in a way that shows God we really do care about those who are suffering as a result of our government's policies. 
So many are suffering, not just in the United States, but around the world. We cannot pretend that inaction and despair is a viable option. option. Voting is just a start. There's much more to do, and it's people of faith who must lead the way. Well, I think that Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a hero in his day, and I believe that Eric Metaxas is right in our day, and I think that both of them understood what Jesus meant in the Sermon on the Mount when he said that his people, his church, is to be salt and light in the culture. When he said that to the to the followers, he said, you're the salt of the earth. I mean, they understood in a day without refrigeration that if you rubbed salt into meat, it would preserve it and prevent it from decaying. And the picture was clear, that if his followers were rubbed into society, it would prevent the moral decay that just typically happens within a culture. Then when he said to them, you're the light of the world, these people in his day without electricity understood that you could be so encompassed by darkness and yet if you lit a candle, it would overpower the darkness. And the picture was clear that his people, if they would hold forth the gospel, it could bring light into a darkening culture. The gospel has the power to save the soul of any sinner who believes in the good news, the gospel, uh, that Jesus is Savior. But the gospel also has power to transform and reclaim a culture when the Lord's people live out their lives as salt and light in that culture. There is a culture war going on, and some of you know that, and some of you know that we're in a war against terror, but some of you also know that for the last many years there's been a culture war taking place in our nation for the hearts and minds of people. And it's really even being aimed at the youngest children in our society through education. And culture is shifting. That war is taking place. And my conviction is this, that the culture war is lost if the church abandons the field. So what is the state of this culture war? There's an outline in your bulletin. Secular progressives boast that the culture war is over. One spokesperson for this is a Harvard law professor who recently stated this. For liberals, the question now is how to deal with the losers in the culture wars. That's mostly a question of tactics. My own judgment is that taking a hard line, you lost it, live with it, is better than trying to accommodate the losers. Trying to be nice to losers didn't work well after the Civil War, and taking a hard line seemed to work reasonably well in Germany and Japan after 1945. This professor reflects so many from the left's perspective that you people who value traditional values, or certainly base your beliefs on the Bible, you're products of a bygone era. Unsophisticated, you've lost, get over it. Well, for more than 200 years, Americans counted on religious freedom that was accorded to all of its citizens here in this country. It was just 
not only a great blessing to the people who lived here, but it was a beacon of hope to people in other nations as they looked to America and realized there's a place, there's a nation where you can actually practice your religion or your faith freely. That has been eroded radically in the last several years. There's so many uh, ways that that could be illustrated. I'll mention just a few. One person left an earlier service this morning who's a counselor in our local high schools. And he told me that uh, he is being mandated now to attend meetings and uh, trained in sensitivity training to LGBTQ and told that he has to tell students that they can choose whichever bathroom they want depending on what they identify as. That's in our local school system. That's across the nation. That's just one example. There's a judge who, because of his Christian convictions, has decided he can't perform same-sex weddings. He's about to be removed from the bench. There's a family, the Stormans, who have a pharmacy that they operate in. And because of their religious convictions, they decided they could not sell abortifacients. It's uh, abortion-inducing drugs. Even though they would recommend to people, uh, their customers, five different pharmacies around that would do so. But now because of that, uh, they are being forced, if they wish to stay in business, to do so. There's a, an Oregon couple, and you've heard this in the news, Aaron and Melissa Klein, who operated a bakery. And they declined to sell a cake to a couple for a same-sex wedding because it would violate their conscience. And because of that, they were forced to close their bakery and they were fined $135,000. Or at least they may be fined that amount. Now, let me take that case in particular. That was their choice because of their conscience and their convictions. If I had been running that bakery personally, I would have baked a cake. I would have said, yeah, here you go. And I, was, I would have sought to have blessed a couple and reached out to them. But you know what? That's, a ch that's an individual choice. That's a gray area for Christians uh, as to what they can participate in and not and how they will respond to what they believe are biblical principles. And so what I think we need to understand is that freedom of religion has dictated that either choice is okay when there is freedom of religion. But no longer is that the case. Courts are now uh, forcing businesses to pay large fines or, and or to violate their religious convictions, as well as uh, Christian colleges and uh, other Christian companies. Not only that, the federal government is now bullying states who take positions based on what they believe is morally correct and uh, imposing huge fines upon them and withholding federal funds that are due to them to force them to comply. So we're in a situation where the battle seems to be going the wrong direction and in fact the secular progressives, those who want no intrusion of faith or religion into government, seem to be winning. Secular progressives boast of this that the culture war is over, but their celebration is premature. The writer of Psalms said this in the second Psalm, 
And he's speaking about nations that rebel against the ways of the Lord. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings, kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel against, together against the Lord and against his anointed. That's another word for Christ. Saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Who's that? That's Christ himself. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, that he may not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. And so this is an invitation to nations and to rulers of nations, but it's a warning to them as well that presently they can receive the blessings of the Lord and the grace of God, but there will come a day if they persist in rebellion that his wrath will be unleashed upon that nation. And that's true of nations. It's true of individuals as well. So what do we do as the church and as the people of God? God's people must stand, not on shifting cultural values, but on timeless biblical principles. If you've been paying attention at all in the last few decades, you've noticed that our values as a nation have shifted dramatically. Most of you have heard of George Barna, who's a pollster, and he's been taking surveys across America for decades. And uh, he and a fellow by the name of David Barton partnered to come up with a book. David Barton is the founder of Wall Builders. Wall Builders is a wonderful organization based in Washington, D.C., that has done so much research on the writings of the founders of this nation and determined what they really believed and what they really based their values on. And they, they realized and made it clear that, that it was on biblical values that this nation was set forth, even though many revisionists have tried to say otherwise. Well, George Barna and David Barton teamed up to write this book called U-Turn, Restoring America to the Strengths of Its Roots. And they've taken the research that Barna does and the research that Barton does in the early part of our nation and have shown what's happened to our values and how we must turn this thing around. It's a fascinating book, and it gets complex when they discuss some of these values, but one of the things they have done is set forth a composite of the values that characterized our nation in the late 18th century, the late 1700s. And they did this by researching newspapers, public speeches that were given, uh, sermons that were preached, and generally could construct the values that were embraced by most people in that day. Benjamin Franklin even had his 13 virtues as well that he set forth. But these values, generally embraced then, were freedom, truth and honesty, hard work, civic duty, family, humility, faith and piety or holiness, rule of law, self-control, happiness, 
contentment, moderation, frugality, justice, chastity, simplicity. Now, the nation back then wasn't perfect. There have always been problems and flaws because people inhabited the nation. But generally, they held these values. What about 250 years later? Today, those values that are shared by our people in general are vastly different. Their belonging and acceptance, comfort, entertainment, experiences, expressiveness, financial security, flexibility, freedom, happiness, individuality, love, meaning and purpose in life, personal control, physical security, self-reliance, independence, speed, and stability. As different as those two sets of values are, Barna and Barton said if they had written this book 25 years earlier, there wouldn't have been that much difference. But in the last 25 years, there's been an infusion of new values and an abandonment of traditional values in just 25 years. In fact, this is what they stated in the book. The more secular and biblically illiterate America becomes, the less is the genuine purpose of government being fulfilled, whether in the issues of morality, life, education, economics, business, self-defense, taxation, or any other. A government will be limited only so long as it understands that there is a power greater than itself to which it must answer, God Almighty, who not only ordained government, but also gave specific directives on how it was to operate. And listen to this. Whenever government becomes secular, it ceases to be limited, for it recognizes no power higher than itself and therefore becomes the supreme authority on all subjects and in all venues as has now become the case in America. The Bible says if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? In the English version, that's put this way. There's nothing a good person can do when everything falls apart. Well, I believe that everything has been falling apart and that the foundations are being destroyed. And I want to mention just a few of those foundations this morning. One is sanctity of life. The view that life is sacred, that God is the one who gives life, and he's the one that determines when that life is over. But we've seen that foundation destroyed so clearly. I mean, in 1973, when the Supreme Court ruled in the Roe v. Wade decision saying that it's legal to take the life of an unborn, that was a watershed issue. And since then, we've gone on to physician-assisted suicide and euthanasia and just the taking of life legally in state after state, as well as across the nation. But the Bible said in Genesis that man was made in the image of God, and that any attack on another person or shedding that person's blood was like an attack on God himself. And that was affirmed throughout Scripture and throughout history, the history of our nation in any case. But now, since 1973, almost 60 million unborn children have lost their lives because of abortion. 
Here's what uh, Tony Evans, the pastor of Oak Cliff Bible Church, says, an African-American pastor who's one of my heroes. He said this, When the governing representatives of the people legalize the shedding of innocent blood, then they have placed themselves and those they represent in the direct line of God's judgment. There is a price tag for legalizing the shedding of innocent blood. The more unborn babies are murdered in our land, the more we can expect violence in our culture as well. Because when a culture goes against God's laws, God will allow that culture to experience the consequences of the breaking of that law. In this case, the resultant devaluing of life as well as the effects of that devaluing. And we've seen that happen in our culture where life's cheap now because if you can take the life of the unborn, you can really create violence against any life. I believe that thinking people in this last year should have been shocked and outraged at the exposure of Planned Parenthood. When it was revealed through videos that were taken that they were negotiating the price of harvested baby parts from those that were being aborted, selling those baby parts and making great profit off of them. But instead of them being indicted, the people that took the videos were the ones that were uh, sued for that. One of our presidential candidates appeared before Planned Parenthood in January and said, I will always defend Planned Parenthood, and as your president, I'll have your back. To me, that is just outrageous, and uh, we need to take note of that. Another foundation is marriage. I mean, Genesis, God made it clear that his plan for marriage was one man and one woman. And Jesus affirmed that in his day, and all of Scripture supported that, and the history of humanity and our nation has supported that. But look at what's happened to the foundation, even in this past year as same-sex marriage was mandated and became the law of the land. Another foundation, fiscal responsibility as set forth in Scripture. I mean, our founding fathers clearly understood that. And you can read their writings. George Washington talked about the peril of national debt and how it should be avoided at all costs. Alexander Hamilton, the Treasury Secretary, said the same thing so clearly. Thomas Jefferson said this, to preserve the people's independence, we must not let our rulers load us with perpetual debt. I place frugality among the first and most important of virtues and public debt as the greatest of the dangers to be feared. These people understood what the Bible says, the borrower becomes the lender's slave. That's true of individuals, and it's true of governments. Just a few years ago, in January 2009, our national debt stood at an astonishing $10.6 trillion. But in just a little over seven years, it's now at $18 trillion. Most of us can't even wrap our minds around those kinds of figures. And so it's gone up $7.4 trillion in these last seven-plus years. So Democrats and Republicans have conspired together to load us with perpetual debt, and I believe that is immoral. 
and outrageous, and that is a foundation that has been destroyed. Another one, self-reliance. Welfare and entitlements have become the norm in our nation. In the 1930s, during the Great Depression, there was put in place help for people. Uh, many refused it, but this was to be a temporary safety net. But now this has become just the way it is in America to where 49% of American households receive some sort of government support. Even welfare itself was always tied to working or an attempt to find a job, no longer. Uh, just recently, our president uh, unilaterally rescinded any work requirement for welfare. And so we have a situation today where people can actually uh, earn plenty, in some cases, by not working. One uh, citing in this book is of the state of Hawaii, where it says, if you're a family of three and no one is working, it would take $61,000 of salary to overcome what you can make by not working. Where's the motivation in that? That strips people of any desire to work. Here's something that Tony Evans said about that. He said, when the government tries to act as someone's parent and pay someone's bills while they do not work, the government has become more than the government was designed to be. The Bible says if a man does not work, he ought not to eat, 2 Thessalonians 3. It is not talking about when a man cannot work. It is talking about when a man will not work. If a man does not work, you do not offer him a welfare check to pay him for his irresponsibility. You don't look to the government to pay for laziness while taxing others to cover the bill. Just as God restricts the church from giving charity to people prior to getting the family involved first, 1 Timothy 5, likewise, civil government is not to provide charity prior to the involvement of the family, church, and other local charitable entities. There's a reason for that. Because when the family is responsible for helping out those in its own family, when a church is called to care for people in its midst, they know them. There is love that can be expressed, and there's accountability that can be built into that. But when the government takes over, that's all out the window. That foundation's been destroyed. And one more I'll mention is national defense. That's one of the primary purposes of government, is to defend and protect its people from both foreign and domestic terror and crime. And yet, increasingly, in the last several years, we've seen our military morale plummet as the various services have been used more for social experimentation rather than military preparedness. That's one of the reasons why the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, general, a Marine general, recently resigned. And he listed 20 reasons why he can't handle it anymore. And one among them was all the others who've been pushed out of the services or have gotten out because of what's happening within the military services. One person cited how uh, he was instructed to conduct sensitivity training by making all his troops wear high heels and put on lipstick and march around. And that's preparing for combat. 
just recently, within a couple of weeks, uh, the Navy issued a decree that they would mandate sensitivity, sensitivity training for all people within its uh, jurisdiction regarding the LGBT agenda. And now they're spending time on that, and they believe that'll go through all of the Department of Defense, including uh, the schools that are operated for the children of military dependents. And so our military has been transformed into a social experiment rather than being used for the purpose it was intended. That's a foundation, I believe, has also been destroyed. The Bible says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness. And I believe that's exactly what's been happening in so many foundations of our nation. So what do we do about it? Where do we stand? We may not like our choices, but there's more at stake in this election than the White House. I believe, personally, now I'm moving into the area of some personal opinion, that we've never had a worse choice when it comes to voting for the highest office in our land. It's really kind of sad, and yet I guess we as the electorate have to own it. They say that a, a people deserves the politicians that they put in office, and if that's so, we don't deserve very much right now. Some people have said, well, um, I'm going to sit this one out. But that's what most evangelical Christians did the last election. Others have said, well, I'm going to vote for a third-party candidate. The problem with that is one of the candidates from the two major parties is going to win this election. And so, in my opinion, we need to make the best decision that we can in choosing the lesser of evils to vote for one who we believe will implement principles that most align with our values. My dilemma, as some of you may identify with, is do I vote for an unindicted criminal or do I vote for a narcissistic loose cannon? <laughs> Somebody said after the TGIF service, yeah, to me it's either a crook or a jerk. I'm not sure who to pull the lever for. Well, I'll tell you who I'm going to vote for. In essence, I'm not going to vote for either of those people, even though I have to vote for one of them. I'm going to vote for the real prize that I believe is in this election beyond the White House, and that is the Supreme Court justices that will be appointed by this next president. As many of you know, we have eight now. There's four that are liberal and four that are conservative after Anthony Scalia's death. And the rulings that have come, well, they're deadlocked now. The next president will not only appoint the ninth, but maybe three to four more in the next four to eight years. And here's the thing. Those appointed judges will probably serve and change the course of the country for the next 30 to 40 years at least. And so I believe we need to cast our vote in light of that understanding. Now, one of the candidates for president has said that the objective will be to appoint liberal justices in the mold of Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor. The other one is 
set forth a list of conservative judges that would be appointed and says that that's who would be appointed. Will that person do it? I don't know. But this person says, I'm going to appoint liberal justices. And so I've personally chosen to cast my vote for Supreme Court justices in this one. Let me give you an example. In June, the state of Texas had passed a law that demanded that Planned Parenthood clinics become safer for women in three ways. They wanted to improve safety conditions within the clinic. They wanted to make sure there were plenty of gurneys, and they wanted to make sure that the physicians who attended those clinics also had admissions privileges in local hospitals because many of the women need hospitalization after those abortions. A, a, a district judge struck that down, and it was appealed all the way to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court refused to hear it letting it stand that the state of Texas could not require safety in those clinics. So can you imagine if a president comes in and then begins to appoint liberal judges, as one candidate has promised, and uh, we move from four to four to six to three, or even seven to two, and what will happen in the years to come? Now let me let you in on a little secret that some of you know. This is not by accident. This is by design. Decades ago, liberals decided that they would never be able to get their agenda implemented through the representatives, through the legislatures, because those are put in there by the voting public. They knew that if they were able to impose their values, it would have to come through the courts. And if they could take over the courts, unelected officials who are put in there by appointment, they could impose their values on the rest of this culture. And that's what's happened. And we find ourselves in this state today where we're seeing that agenda imposed. That same Harvard Law professor who was boasting the culture war is now over, he said this, Right now, more than half of the judges sitting on the courts of appeals were appointed by Democratic presidents. And though I wasn't able to locate up-to-date numbers, the same appears to be true of the district courts. And those judges no longer have to be worried about reversal by the Supreme Court if they take aggressively liberal positions. And if that's true, the culture war is over. And so I believe this election really has to do with Supreme Court justices ultimately. The Bible says righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. Do you know what exalts means? It means makes great. Righteousness makes a nation great. Both of our candidates have talked about greatness. One said, let's make America great again. The other one says, America never stopped being great. I'm not sure either of the candidates for president understand how God defines greatness. And that is through righteousness. But we do. We understand what God says. And we know that... This nation was a beacon of light and is a beacon of light only when it stands for truth and for righteousness. Some of you listening may not agree with me, and I respect that. And some of you, even if you do agree, think, this is really bad news. It is. It is bad news, but it's reality. And denial doesn't help anyone. 
But here's the thing. We're all about the good news. And there is good news because the gospel is good news. And the good news is, is that no matter who is elected president, Jesus is still the king. And all will ultimately answer to him. But so will we as the church. And that means we have a responsibility to be salt and to be light and to bring the gospel to bear not only on the salvation of people who need a savior just like us, but on the reclamation of a culture that needs to be rectified. And that'll happen as we look to the Lord and know that whatever happens, we can trust the Lord and that his truth and his church will prevail. Can, can a church survive? Can a church even thrive when there's hostility from the government? Of course. In fact, sometimes that's the best thing for the kingdom and for the church, and we see that throughout history. But Scripture also calls us to pray for leaders and for those who are in authority that we may lead quiet and dignified lives because that gives space for the gospel to be freely proclaimed. So whatever happens, Christ's church will prevail. And we have no room for despair or hopelessness because Christ is king. And we look to him and ask him to help us live out our lives as salt and light. Let's bow for prayer. Lord, we're so grateful that we aren't ultimately subjected to the whims of politicians and self-serving leaders and rulers and those who would defy you. We know our own hearts and our capacity to do that, Lord, and, and we know that we depend on your grace and mercy. And our nation does as well. So, Lord, I would pray for our nation and with all those who love our country that you would reign in the hearts and lives of our leaders and that there would be a U-turn, a real turning to you in not just this election, Lord, but more importantly, in the lives of the people in your church that would just permeate this culture in the days to come. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen.